This week on the Backtable Podcast. When I see a patient in clinic who has any question of central venous occlusion, uh, they all get CT venograms, chest okay. CT venograms. Um, and the reason is I need to know what I'm going into. I need to know my approach. I need to know even practical things like how much time am I going to need for this? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of patients who are referred to me with a setting of occlusion. And what I used to tell my fellows is when you see a traffic jam, if all you see is cars, you don't know if that's a mile long or 20 miles long. Okay. And so there are a lot of patients who have occlusion because they only have this focal little occlusion. They, the contrast didn't go past it, but the truth is everything distal was wide open. So that's a 10-minute case. Or is everything closed to the right atrium? And so I think a CT venogram is very useful, and I get it on the vast majority of my patients that I'm considering recanalization on in clinic. Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I encourage our listeners to check out our new procedure-based app, which includes videos, articles, and even our podcast to help you tackle the cases on your board. The app is free and it's available on iTunes Store. We're back today to talk about upper extremity and central venous interventions. Joining me today are Sabine Don and Mark Lesney. First off, thank you both for taking the time to do this. We're honored to have you on board. I thought we'd start with some introductions. Um, please tell us who you are, how you got there, and about the role upper extremity and central venous interventions currently play in your practice, starting with you, Sabine. All right. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me again on this podcast. So my name is Sabine Dond. I, uh, I trained a couple of years ago at Northwestern, and uh, I ended up moving to California uh, for my uh, job at PIH. And uh, it's a mixed uh, practice doing both uh, vascular, venous, and other work. And uh, we do a lot of things uh, in, in regards to this podcast. Uh, dialysis work is something that is uh, a, a big part of our practice. And <clears throat> I think I was able to gain a lot of understanding of both uh, lower and upper extremity venous work from training, but I learned a lot on the job too. So I'm really excited to talk about it today and and also learn some new tricks from you guys and Mark, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, this is kind of your thing, right? It's my thing. I like it. So I am, uh, yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm currently in Charlotte. I'm part of a vascular and interventional specialist of Charlotte Radiology. Uh, I came by way of, I trained at Duke for residency and fellowship, where I trained with Charles Kim, who's the current section head, um, who does uh, quite a few central venous recanalizations and a lot of complex central venous work. I was then on faculty at Hopkins, where I still have an adjunct appointment. And then when I moved to Charlotte about three and a half years ago, um, I took over a large part of the central venous practice in North Carolina. So I think Charles Kim and I probably did the lion's chair in all of North Carolina. Um, I have a very busy vascular practice. Uh, a large bulk of it is central uh, venous work. So, Mark, for you know, both dialysis-related uh, issues and central venous recanalization, I mean, what are the major sources of your referrals? Yeah, the good question. So, actually, my practice exploded probably in Charlotte about maybe half a year to a year in uh, when I gave a talk to the vascular surgeons, the nephrologists, about some of the more advanced central venous uh, recanalizations and salvage work we could do. And ever since then, the vast majority comes from those two groups, vascular surgery right. and nephrology. What about you, Sabine? Yeah, I would say as far as central venous work, a lot of it comes from our dialysis patients, which are either 
you know, referred from the hospital or a lot of the local dialysis centers, uh, the, the common physicians who work there in my hospital will just send it to us for any issues that they have. Um, so those are, those, those are the bulk of the referrals. Actually. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think we have a, a good bit to cover. So now we've got some background. Let's just go ahead and jump on into the technical elements. Uh, and I'd like to begin by addressing dialysis access interventions other than D-clots and central venous recanalizations, uh, which we'll cover separately. So Mark, you know, what do you look for in history and physical exam to guide, you know, how you're going to approach, you know, in terms of access and equipment, uh, an issue with dialysis access? Yeah, so I think the first thing is a good history and physical. It goes back to medical school. Um, we know that lesions seen on angiography are not necessarily um, responsible for for symptoms and often don't need treatment. And we have to always avoid the oculoplasty reflex. So just because we see something, we don't have to treat it. Um, the uh, reason why the patient is there is, for me, the number one reason. Are they bleeding too much? Is their failure to mature is the um, pressure low at dialysis? Are they not getting good dialysis efficacy? And in fact, we'll go so far as if I have a patient show up and we don't have a good history, we pause and we call the dialysis center to make sure we know what we're getting into before we undertake any intervention. And then certainly the physical examination. Is it pulsatile? Uh, is it flaccid? Is the, uh, is the fistula not maturing? Is the graft obviously thrombosed? Um, you can get a lot from the physical examination. Where does the brewery fall off? Um, on physical exam, is it close to the anastomosis or is it downstream? Uh, that that way, you sort of know going in what sort of intervention you're doing, where are you planning, where's your access, and and that's a good start. So, in terms of history, what kind of things tell you this is something in the venous outflow? So, for me, anything that suggests um, back pressure, so excessive bleeding at dialysis, increased um, uh, decreased flow rates uh, can obviously be both. Um, if there is pulsatility, increased pulsatility, aneurysm formation, anything that tells me that there is an obstruction to flow. And, uh, of course, the analogy I always give to my patients is veins and arteries are like a highway. If you block the highway, traffic builds up, and that's going to manifest as aneurysmal dilation, increased pulsatility, increased bleeding after dialysis. Um, now, Sabine, what kind of things would suggest an, if, an issue with the inflow? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that, that's definitely something, you know, you have to think about as far as starting your axis and everything. And so slow flows during dialysis, that usually points me uh, to inflow or a poor thrill, um, difficult to cannulate. Those are sort of the indications we get from our referrals that point me into more of a proximal or inflow lesion. Uh, again, too, one of the things... First of all, I love uh, Mark's oculoplasty comment. I, I, I love that <laughs> word. That's great. It's so true, too. It's just like you see something and you want to treat it. But it's so important to know the history and, and why that patient is sent to you. Um, a lot of times the patients don't know why they're there, but sometimes they do. And they actually provide a really good history. And they'll tell you, they'll point to you and be like, it hurts right here. Or I feel something right here. And I've seen... A lot of times that's where some critical lesion is. So, um, yeah, I definitely think a good history and um, an exam is important to, to determine what your access is going to be and what you're going to look for. Okay. Uh, so let's start with failure to mature. Uh, you know, in terms of definition, like how long should it take from access creation to maturation? So I think it depends on, obviously, the type. There's, you know, right. everything from... Um, 
you know, radius phallic and breaks basically. But generally, we I think by around three months when we see failure to mature, we're starting to be a little bit more aggressive. I will tell you, we don't. My practice does not uh, have a ton of um, assisted maturation interventions, or intervent. We don't have a ton of uh, interventions to assist with maturation. Um, I think that's probably local, depending on whether your surgeons, access surgeons, put in a lot of grafts or fistulas. Uh, we tend to be a little graft heavy, unfortunately, here. Um, but but clearly, I think once you have uh, three months and you have no failure to mature, you have failure to mature. Um, I think there is an intervention warranted, or at least a evaluation warranted, to make sure that there's not some inflow outflow lesion that's prohibiting uh, full maturation. And when you do your, um, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, sometimes we'll even go as early as, as six weeks to eight weeks. Uh, we, we are fistula, uh, native, uh, AV fistula heavy. And, um, by about two months, we'll start getting some referrals as far as it's not maturing or difficult to cannulate. Uh, but again, like Mark said, we don't do too much of the, you know, the kind of old school balloon assisted maturation. Uh, usually there's some sort of lesion, whether it's an arterial lesion or, um, some central lesion that's preventing the maturation. So being out of curiosity, when you're looking at these for failure to mature, do you tend to stick the artery and, and just go um, anagrade to look, or do you stick the vein and go, you know, backwards, um, retrograde and, and image from there? Uh, I, I tend to stick the vein and go backwards. I, um, I rarely stick the artery directly in, in these, um, in these procedures, but um, if I'm thinking it's something inflow, I'll definitely stick towards the artery at a distal fistula. And, and I actually, uh, uh, I forgot to mention earlier, as far as my examination goes, I, I always use ultrasound and I'll ultrasound at least the first 10 sec, uh, 10 centimeters of the fistula. And that usually tells me something too. Um, and that helps me guide my access. Okay. I'd like to, uh, echo that part of the pun regarding ultrasound that uh, I think that's crucial. I feel like when I was a fellow, we were, you know, it was sort of uh, weak if you had to use ultrasound to stick a fistula or stick a graft. But the, to be honest, you can get tremendous amounts of information and nothing is more aggravating than getting access, doing a fistulagram and realize you've accessed directly into a stenotic lesion that I you have agree. to fix and then have to get a new access. So I think ultrasound, even for a mega fistula that you don't have a problem sticking, it's not because you need to have access help it's to get other information i think is is crucial okay uh so let's move on you know from here to the interventions in these um so you know bringing up the oculoplastic reflex uh do you have a a typical balloon size that you use for you know each lesion location or does it just depend on you know what it looks like on angiography yeah i have a typical balloon size in general um based on anatomic location and certainly based on type of access um, so for grafts and arm fistulas, uh, you know, I generally looking at the eights eight millimeters is generally my goal, my standard eight millimeters is generally my standard, um, for cephalic arch. I find that to be among the most variable. Um, I find cephalic arch lesions to be anywhere from small to I've treated them with 12s and 14s before. Um, and then certainly centrally I am, it is uncommon for me not to treat, a central lesion with a 12 or 14 millimeter um, device mm -hmm. um, in the, you know, especially in the brachycephalic uh, veins uh, traditionally. 
but obviously you have to go with the patient. If you have a small little um, woman with a small arm, then clearly that's going to be different than if you have a six foot five uh, man with a you know huge fistula. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, with Mark's uh, measurements too. I mean, that's generally speaking, that's what goes. I, I've never done a fourteen millimeter encephalic arch, but I, I'm uh, I'm sure that some of my patients could probably use that. But uh, it definitely varies. I mean, some patients have, you know, as far as the proximal outflow can be, you know, six or seven millimeters, but usually eight is a good target. And centrally, um, you know, I, I will go a little aggressive in the brachiocephalic vein, and, and I have 16 and 18 millimeter balloons that I open up uh, quite frequently um, if, I, if I need that. Sabine, what do you use for perianastomotic lesions? Like I usually go. I usually go with a five or a six. If it's a if it's a well matured fistula, it's not something new, and I'm worried about the anastomosis. I'll always start with a five by forty or a five by sixty, and and usually, uh, if that doesn't resolve or I don't like the post plasty result, I'll go with a six millimeter. Rarely more than six. I, I think six millimeters is quite uh, a good size for an arterial anastomosis. What about you, Mark? I agree. Uh, it's usually in the four to five to six category with a uh, weighted toward the five, six. Okay. Uh, one more question for you guys. Do either of you use uh, flow measurements during these procedures? You know, this is a big part of how we did it uh, at Penn, but now, you know, uh, most of the hospitals I'm working at, they don't have the flow measurement equipment. And so I'm, I'm actually doing this mostly by angiographic appearance and physical exam. That's pretty interesting. I'd love to know more about that. I'm definitely visually just looking at the flow and if that looks if that looks good or bad that's what i'm treating off of but i don't have any kind of quantitative measurement um i was going to bring up another question i'll let mark answer and then i was going to ask another way of evaluating to see what he says yeah so we don't have flow uh, intra we don't have interprocedural flow measurement either and actually sabine and i talk a lot about um peripheral artery disease and critical limb ischemia and i think both in dialysis work and in that sphere, the angiography is useful but insufficient. And we are absolutely um, not getting complete pictures. And there are patients where we see all the time, we treat them and we pat ourselves on the back and everything looks great. And they clot off uh, you know, a month later or have poor dialysis a month later. Um, is it a restenotic lesion or did you not treat something that you should have? Um, or I think often is the case, we overtreat. Uh, that we see a lesion, we treat it, but that wasn't actually the lesion that was hemodynamically significant or uh, relevant to their symptoms. So I think there's a lot to be done about functional imaging in dialysis uh, world. I wish I knew yeah. more about what it cost when we were pen the system because it was as simple as just putting in a very small catheter through your sheath and you measured flows and it gave you the flow in milliliter per minute. And so, you know, it would tell us certain things, you know, did we, you know, treat this well enough? There may be a residual stenosis, but is it significant because you know, you can tell if you have dialysis quality flow. Other things, you know, if you had very, very rapid flow, you know, we would, uh, you know, put in our report and occasionally contact the doctors and tell them, like, you know, this is over two liters a minute. This patient's at risk for heart failure. Um, it, it was a very useful thing. Um, you know, I wish it were uh, more prevalent, but I, I yeah. got the impression it was a fairly expensive device. That's really cool. I mean, that would be a very nice functional uh, yeah, the other thing I was going to mention, and Mark let go, is I was wondering, and I've done it very rarely, but I've done it in occasion, and, and it's 
speaking back to PAD is, is I've used IVIS um, at yeah. times to evaluate central lesions, especially because in the AP projection, a lot of times you miss a lesion. And I, I've noticed that on IVIS. I've only probably used IVIS to treat a, a fistula maybe three or four times, but it's it's been useful. I don't know if other people use that uh, regularly in a fistula setting. I haven't. Mark, have you? Yeah, I agree, Sabine. I have. I think that's a great comment. Um, so I will use IVIS. Obviously, I will almost never use it the first go around, but I'll use it in a situation that I described where I finish a um, a treatment and somehow the patient, there's some resolve. They still have swelling. And then I will use IVIS, um, especially since, you know, there is a there's a left brachycephalic vein nutcracker-like syndrome. Um, and so before you're treating stenoses uh, with just angioplasty alone, you want to make sure that there's not actually an external compression. Um, and so I have used it for generally for prior failures that are inexplicable, to me at least. You know, Mark and Sabine, are either of you using uh, drug-coated balloons at all in your dialysis access intervention? I am. Yeah, obviously they just became available, what, about two months ago? Um, and I am using the the AV Lutonics, which is the only one available for um, for uh, fistulas, peripheral fistula lesions, on label. Uh, obviously, it's off label to use centrally. Um, I have used them centrally, but generally, I'll use them for peripheral fistula, uh, which is the indication. Sabine, what about you? Yeah, I I agree too. I've been I've been using DCVs as soon as they've been available in fistulas, but. To be honest, I'm probably using them more off-label and more often than not centrally. Um, their, their largest balloon uh, that's available is a 12 millimeter, and uh, I, I have been trying that. It hasn't been enough time right now to see whether that's preventing a right. central restenosis, but uh, it, it makes me feel better given the, the good results I see in the legs. I'll use a, you know, uh, now with the option of having a drug-coated balloon, I'll try that. And if angiographically it looks okay, I mean, I won't stent. And if they come back and I have a similar or worse lesion, I'll end up stenting. Uh, that's pretty, within within a short duration. And for me, short is about three months. Um, but, you know, now before it would be, I would try plain old balloon angioplasty, and then I wouldn't have the second middleman option of DCB, uh, and I would go to stent. But if, if it's something recurring within three months and something significant, uh, then that's when I, I, I try first plain old, then DCB, and then stenting usually in three different procedures. Mark, anything to add there? You know, drug-coated balloons have no role unless you have a good angioplastic result. Okay. Um, so I always start with a... Uh, plain old balloon angioplasty and if it looks good that is the only time i will consider dcb clearly if it looks bad residual 30 percent stenosis um dissection um that's flow limiting then i would certainly just move to a stent at that point um if i use a dcb i use exactly the same rule that sabine does uh you know sort of use that kadoki three month timeline if they come back within three months i have to do something different whether that means I did a POBA last time and I do a DCB this time, or I did a DCB last time and I need a stent this time, that's fine. But within three months, I have to do something different. Otherwise, it's the definition of insanity to me. <laughs> Mark, I have a question. Sometimes, and and this is obviously off-label, but 
you know, I do this in the legs or have done it where I lace, you know, the POBA result is not good. But I decide that even though I'm going to stent with a bare metal stent, I'm going to lace the vein or artery or vein in this case with DCB and then stent, essentially creating a uh, a drug eluding stent or you get a drug coated stent per se. Do you ever do that in the vein, in, in this setting right now? Like say centrally, would you put some drug there and then stent or are you wouldn't you wouldn't go with that? No, I do. I mean, obviously there are no good data for that. Um, but yeah. I usually, the setting I'll do that is almost when it's not intentional. So in other words, often yeah. I will use a DCB. I will use a DCB hoping it's a good result um, after an angioplasty. And for whatever reason, it looks worse than I thought. And then I put a stent centrally and I do have a DCB underlying there. Um, the other trick I'll do is, you know, as being said, uh, AV Lutonics only comes to 12 millimeters. I will... If I'm treating a lesion centrally that needs 14 or 16, I will dilate with the 12 and then over dilate with the 14 to 16 plain old balloon after that. Um, so I know I have a size and the drug. Again, we don't know what that does, but um, that's another strategy that's been employed more and more. So, Sabine, I think it's totally reasonable what you're doing. I mean, I like that idea. And then just a little trick to our listeners. I know that a big pushback of using a 12 millimeter DCB is, is, is Bard's recommendation for a nine French sheath. We'll of course talk about closing our access later oh, in the podcast, but yeah, <laughs> but I know. Right. Mark, Mark's got some cool tricks up his sleeve, but uh, I definitely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've, uh, I've definitely used, an eight French. I haven't tried a seven French, but the, the 12 millimeter balloon goes through an eight fine, but I would not uh, go bareback uh, with a, with a balloon, especially since you'll be coating your entry site with paclitaxel, which is probably not a good idea. All right. Uh, so at this point, let's go ahead and move on to declots, which has been really interesting to me in my, my five months since I finished training, this is probably the procedure where I've seen the greatest variant. <laughs> And from person to person for how they do them. Uh, I mean, at, at polling just a few people in my group, no one does them the same way. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to hear what you guys have to say, like how you approach and how you complete a declot. And, you know, what do you use? Uh, starting with you, Sabine. Okay. Yeah. My, my whole method of doing a declot changed dramatically from training and going to work. Uh, I, I believe it took a lot of time in training. One was just, you're learning it, but I do feel we were using a little bit extra catheters that are unnecessary. Um, I'll talk about how I do it now and it's a lot faster. And what I do is I always just, I get access towards the central vein and find out where the clot burden is. Then if there's a central lesion at that point, I will um, dilate that lesion uh, so that my clot later doesn't get lodged there. And I will then lace my, uh, clot burden with around anywhere between four to eight milligrams of TPA through an end hole catheter. Uh, this was a significant difference from training where we used to pulse spray through a multi-infusion catheter. Uh, but I would just lace it with my end hole. And while that is laced with TPA, I will gain my retrograde axis towards the artery. I will then... Um, Oh, sorry, I, I missed a step there. I usually, after lacing it, I'll, I'll use a orbital thrombectomy device, such as a cleaner, my first choice. 
or I'll use a Teratola, but most of the times I use a cleaner and I'll, I'll make kind of make a milkshake out of my clot and TPA. <laughs> I'll just do it. It's, it literally, this step is just made I'm life so good. easy. <laughs> but yeah, I'll literally, I'll just, I'll let the cleaner go, a six French cleaner. I'll, I'll just, I'll make that milkshake. Once that's there, then I'll, I'll get my retrograde access, pull the plug. And essentially with one pull, I usually re- reestablish flow. And then I'll have maybe one or two lesions to treat and I'm done. Um, and and it, it works great. So really the, the biggest change, I think in training, we used to just macerate the clot with the balloon um, after lacing it. But using an orbital device like a cleaner or Teratola has dramatically improved improved my results and decreased the time of the declock. So a couple questions for you. you know, one, do you do the cleaner going in both directions? I don't. Uh, my partners do. Uh, usually they'll use a Teratola, and one advantage of the Teratola is the seven French can go over a wire. Uh, but I get scared uh, at the artery, and uh, there might just be some PTSD from fellowship when I've had uh, one or two clots go down the arm. So I don't. Uh, I just Fogarty. I use a balloon and, and, and apply a Fogarty technique. Use uh, a at the, yeah, yeah, for the for the plug. And, but I don't. I don't do a, 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 in the anastomosis at all. Okay, Mark. What about you? Yeah. So I when I trained, we had a very minimalist approach to declots that I've retained even in my practice. So I will access um, toward the venous outflow, obviously, and I agree with Sabine, you've got to treat the central lesions first, otherwise you're just going to be spinning your wheels the entire case. So once we restore outflow and ensure that that is adequate, then I'll lace the entire thrombus with TPA, and then I just do a push-pull mechanical thrombectomy. So with a Fogarty balloon, I'll just push the clot. And again, I think, Sabine, you may do it a little different. I actually will do the entire venous outflow before I get retrograde access. And yeah. part of the reason is I think that second sheath gets in the way sometimes from clearing it. So I'll push with a Fogarty first until that's pretty clear. Once I get blood back, very carefully, I'll inject just to make it clear. And actually, I'll externally compress the anastomosis to minimize the risk of uh, refluxing any thrombus. And then I go retrograde. Same thing, Fogarty balloon, pull, and then push that uh, to the heart uh, or to the lungs. And then... Um, and then clean up any other residual stenoses. And obviously it's not done until you visualized artery to right atrium and make sure that looks clean. So Mark, what do you mean by, by push-pull? And when you get your initial access going toward the central veins, how close to the anastomosis are you accessing? So again, as Sabine mentioned, I think ultrasound is key here. I go as close to the anastomosis as possible. Yeah. I want to have as much um, thrombus that I can clear directed toward the venous anastomosis um, as I can. And so I use a Fogarty balloon to push all that clot to the um, central outflow. And then when I get my retrograde access and go into the artery, I will pull with that same Fogarty balloon um, the arterial plug and then push that again to the outflow. Okay. So again, you know, to make my point, three people doing declots three different ways. And the way I learned in training is what I'm still typically doing. Uh, we would access as close as possible the anastomosis going toward the venous outflow. We would just do a pullback venography from the central vein until we identify where the uh, the clot starts. And again, if, if there's something central, we would treat that. But then after that, we would we would get access in both directions at that point. No TPA. And we would just take the... Uh, 
the arrow Cheritola PTD and run it three times in each direction with uh, syringes attached to the sheets. And then after that, it would usually be opened up enough that we could treat any, uh, any stenosis. And of course the patients are um, anticoagulated at this point, but I've since had to change my approach just because, you know, you got to use whatever you've got in your cabinets and just different equipment. I just started using the cleaner and, and actually I just used the, uh, the TPA infusion for the first time when I, I just had a really refractory, uh, thrombosed graft and uh it worked great but again you know there's a lot of ways to skin a cat when it comes to declots you know to further muddy the waters um occasionally i will use angiojet um they have specific like sabine said uh, av specific uh catheters yeah it's probably maybe 10 percent of my declots 15 percent of my declots and they're fine i just think it's an unnecessary expense um most of the time and then the other thing is i have done some transradial declots and I'll tell you, when it works, it's amazing. Uh, when it doesn't work, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> tell me more about it. I'm not, I'm, yeah, tell me more about the – I just don't see the, the utility of a transradial declot. Sinai guys are going nuts right Do now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry, Sinai. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> so, the, so the main advantage of a transradial declot is um, I would like someone to show me a – completely comfortable declot uh, because you're always antegrade, <laughs> retrograde, your hands are difficult. Transradial declot, you can actually stand in one direction and everything is directed toward the outflow. And so, so everything is directed almost like a leg where everything's push. And the um, so the mechanics of it are so much more useful. And to be honest, once you get through the anastomosis, all you do is you're not pulling an arterial plug, you're pushing everything to the outflow. And so literally, you know, the successful ones I've had, it is a 10 to 15 minute declot. Done. Wow. That's, I've never had a declot that. that fast. Wow. Except for the ones that are booked as a declot yeah. and there's no clot. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a question I have about all of this is how easy is it to, to push with a Fogarty? I mean, do you have that much, uh, you know, torqueability to do that? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is pretty fresh clot. You know, if you get acute on chronic, I mean, can you really just push it out? Excuse me. Mark? Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I was always taught um, was you make the Fogarty a circle, not a cigar. And okay. so you want to make okay. it so it's uh, so it's around. It's obviously a very compliant balloon. You make it so it fills the lumen, but you don't want to overstretch it. Um, so, yes, it goes well. And what happens usually is the first time you push, uh, you get stuck in places. You have to deflate a little bit. The second time you push, it's easier. The third time you push, it's much easier. So I'll usually push three times, pull two or three times, and then push one more time at least. Um the and then same thing when you do transradial Fogarty, the pushability is obviously in your favor because all the the vector force is directed toward the outflow, which is exactly um, in a straight uh, vector for you. The difficulties I've run into, and the, I haven't done that many, but the difficulties I've run into with the transradial is when you can't catheterize the anastomosis. So if the anastomosis shows you a little nipple, then it becomes hugely helpful. If it's completely flat. What I've done in the past is I've actually either under ultrasound guidance tried to catheterize it or stuck the fistula going the other way, snared it and externalized it, and then you obviously can can resort can resume your declot. But by the time you're sticking the other way and snaring, you're thinking maybe I shouldn't have gone radial. <laughs> but so when it works, it works. When it doesn't, it you know it's probably as painful as a difficult declot. The ones that you have, you know, my fear is a lot of these patients, you know, obviously they're, they're renal failure and have terrible arteries. And 
Uh, do you ever encounter significant disease in the radial artery where you're you're fighting a stenosis or you're uh, occluding the flow during your declot procedure? I haven't. Again, I don't have a tremendous transradial declot or dialysis um, intervention experience, um, but I've not experienced that, and I haven't experienced that even in routine sort of transradial access yeah. for. Um, you know, for other diseases, obviously patient selection, I think is key, Sabine. I think that's a yeah. really good point. One more thing I want to do before we uh, get into the stuff is talk about um, ways to close these patients uh, because they all have weird names. Like we have Swizzle Stick, which sounds like a rap song. We've got Woggles, <laughs> Woggles, which sounds like something Still, that was on the Muppets. DJ Woggle. DJ yeah. Woggle. <laughs> Woggles. Woggles sounds like a Muppets character and Slipknot sound like a murder device. Uh, so, um, what is a swizzle stick? I have no <laughs> idea what a swizzle stick is. Yeah, a swizzle stick is a very complicated, complex device whereby you take a sheath and you cut it. So basically, you take the stylet and you... So the way I close is I will throw in um, a Z-stitch, so um, you know two bites, usually a 2-0 nylon. And then I take the stylet of whatever sheath I was using and I cut maybe a centimeter and a half to two centimeter stick, swizzle stick. And you insert it under the stitch and you tighten it. And then when you take the sheath out, you dial it in. And so you dial it in just until you get hemostasis. It reminds me of a TR band where you get patent hemostasis. So you're dialing it just enough to uh, tamponade the axis side enough so it doesn't bleed. And then you clean it off, make sure it's nice and dry, and put a little tegaderm on it. And you have a patent hemostasis. Um, And this avoids, obviously, someone having to hold pressure for a while. I've done this with 9 and 10 French sheaths. Um, and clearly there are some overly aggressive holders that can actually thrombose fistulas with their pressure. And I've seen that once before. So this yeah, is a nice, really strong trainees. Yeah. So actually that sounds, uh, pretty much like uh, identical to woggles, except stitch is a little bit different and swizzle stick is a cooler name. Uh, Sabine, what do you use? Yeah. So, uh, well, so I think Woggle is a little bit different. Woggle, or I might be completely wrong, is something we occasionally did in, in fellowship is where you take um, like a, a flow switch or, a, you know, I've I seen right. Mark do it with a, with, a, with a switch, another type of switch, a three-way. And um, you take and then you, you dial it in, and, but, and then you, you, click, you click it at, at a, um, wherever it creates the patent hemostasis, but you have to take that off the flow switch or whatnot off before they go home or the dialysis center has to do it. If they're okay with that, um, it's a little bit more bulky swizzle stick that, I mean, you just have to cut the suture, right, Mark. And then the swizzle the swizzle comes out. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I do it differently. So what, one thing my practice did, and I love this, and I think your dialysis centers have to be okay with it, which luckily they are in my area, but I actually use a Vicryl stitch as I do a Z stitch over the sheath axis. And when we pull the sheath, um, we have, I have my tech pull the sheath and wire as a unit and hold pressure. And then I tighten the stitch. Okay. And, and then I, 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 I do two or three tro- throws and then I cut the stitch and literally it's just this tiny absorbable stitch. That's it. <laughs> It created instant hemostasis, and it just falls off in a week or two. And the patients are okay with it, our dial centers, and you don't even have to think twice. And so we that's what we do. And I can't believe in fellowship I was 
holding a tip stop for 30 minutes on right. each of these cases to get hemostasis. But I love doing that. But I think a lot of people would have, would, would be not as okay with leaving an absorbable stitch in a patient, but it's fine. I'm glad you said absorbable. I can explain why I laughed. I, I thought you said a, a tiny, adorable stitch and not an absorbable oh. stitch. So power scribe thinks it that too. Just <laughs> yeah. okay. No, no, my, my power scribe definitely thinks it's adorable all the time. And it's in a lot of my dictations. <laughs> you know what, Sabine, it is adorable. Um, right. Let's, let's get into this. Let's, let's talk about central venous interventions. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think it's important to distinguish, you know, central venous interventions like recanalization dialysis from those, you know, that are malignancy related. But let, let's focus on the dialysis related ones. Um, to be, what are the main physical exam and history findings that suggest a central venous uh, stenosis or occlusion? Um, usually, you know, uh, the most common, and, and Mark mentioned this earlier, was was arm swelling. Uh, you know, you can look at the patient and physically see swelling down to the fingertips that is asymmetric with their other arm. Uh, of course, increased pressures is another one that I, we get from our dialysis uh, center. And also a history, too. I mean, you may have treated this patient before, and they came back, and you look back on your prior, prior fistulogram, and you see you treated a central lesion. Already, I'm thinking at least, you know, have a seven French sheath available, probably going to do some central uh, work. But... Uh, really, I would say arm swelling is our most common. Arm swelling and neck collaterals is the most common physical exam finding for a critical central lesion. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, again, you know, that, that oculoplastic uh, reflex that Mark had mentioned uh, to bring up because, you know, I, I think you see a lot of these that are asymptomatic, at least the stenoses and not the occlusions. You know, we were taught in fellowship not to touch them unless the patient had arm swelling or Know, fistula dysfunction. And do you treat the ones that you see that, you know, just happen to come up in, uh, in an angiographic case? Mark, I'll let you, I mean, I, I, I guess I tend to treat them because they're usually there for a reason. And that reason correlates with that. But if it's completely not, uh, maybe one or two cases, it's just, it, they, the patient came and they had an intermittent episode of swelling that's resolved and I'll do a I'll do a run, and it looks okay. I all right. There's a little bit of a mild stenosis. I, I won't treat that because I do think it starts a reaction, and you'll probably make things worse or recur sooner. Yeah, I agree. In fact, there was just a paper out of Penn on this issue on this exact issue, and uh, and it does show a worse outcomes if you treat asymptomatic lesions. Um, yeah, no, any lesion in the body needs to have a correlative symptom in order for me to treat. Um, and so one of the things I screen for in patients is obviously what Sabine says, um, arm swelling, it depends, unilateral uh, can help localize the lesion, face swelling, uh, lightheadedness when they bend over, um, urchal sign, which is dilated varicose veins over the shoulder and chest, um, and then any changes in vision, headache, um, that can all be signs of, of central venous occlusion. And traditionally, the, the teaching is Traditionally, the teaching is you only need one side open uh, in order for symptoms to ameliorate. But I think that's obviously less true in dialysis patients where they have arterialized blood flow. So I treat okay. a lot of patients who do have symptoms, even though their contralateral side is pristine or you know patent, because of that extra arterialized flow outflowing into an occluded system. I think it's a really important point. Um, now, 
you know, if you have one of these patients with central venous occlusion and, and you know, you haven't treated the patient before, do you get any pre-procedure imaging mark? I do. When I see a patient in clinic who has any question of central venous occlusion, uh, they all get CT venograms, chest okay. CT venograms. Um, and the reason is I need to know what I'm going into. I need to know my approach. I need to know even practical things like how much time am I going to need for this? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of patients who are referred to me with a setting of occlusion. And what I used to tell my fellows is when you see a traffic jam, if all you see is cars, you don't know if that's a mile long or 20 miles long. Okay. And so there are a lot of patients who have occlusion because they only have this focal little occlusion. They, the contrast didn't go past it, but the truth is everything distal was wide open. So that's a 10-minute case. Or is everything closed to the right atrium? And so I think a CT venogram is very useful, and I get it on the vast majority of my patients that I'm considering recanalization on in clinic. What yeah. about you? I'll echo that. I'll echo that. You know, actually, Mark, I was I had a case several months ago of of someone. A lot of times, my central occlusions I'll see. Uh, I won't have a chance to see in clinics so since they're not really referred from another provider that couldn't get through, uh, like in Mark's case. And in mine, it'll be a, you know someone comes with swelling, say it's a dialysis fistula or some other reason. I do a venogram or fistulagram, and there's this like uh, occlusion and in that case, you know, I'll, since I'm there and I'm already in the vein, I'll try uh, to recanalize it, and especially if I have a good nubbin or, or something to see. Uh, I, will, I will quickly go to groin axis if, if and when I need it and, and try to meet. But I won't go very, very aggressive, such as using some advanced uh, techniques, which we'll talk about. But I I had this case, and, and ever since then, I've been ordering so many more CT venograms because it tells you so much information, and it makes things so much easier and successful. By, and Mark, Mark had mentioned it to me just to get a venogram on this patient that I was considering a translumbar, transhepatic uh, tunnel catheter on, and, and I was able to recanalize him in, in literally about 15 minutes after the venogram, after the CT venogram. So that's a it's a huge tip, and I think you know, we, we should definitely pre-map these patients when we can. Okay. Uh, now, and the thing I'll add to that is, um, again, from a practical purpose for the trainees listening here, part of it is for prognosis. In other words, if I see an 85-year-old patient who's got this massive occlusion all the way to the right atrium, I tell those patients no. I mean, unless they're, if they're, you know, looking for access and they're dialyzing well through a femoral perm cath or a lumbar perm cath, I'm okay saying, as long as you're comfortable with this, we don't need to do this procedure. Now, clearly, if they're miserable, they have face swelling and all that, we'll do it. And, you know, we'll certainly evaluate that. But I think it's okay to sort of be judicious about who you're taking because um, these, these procedures are, can be risky. This is one of the few procedures where I consent for death in some patients. And so I think CT venogram also helps you with patient selection, especially when you're first starting. So generally, anything below... Anything involving the SVC right atrium, um, I generally will request general anesthesia. Um, if it is a subclavian or hybricocephalic lesion um, and the patient is an appropriate candidate, I'll, I'll sometimes do that under moderate sedation. Um, you know, and the reason for that distinction is certainly the pericardial reflection. Things go south um, very quickly once you get below the pericardial reflection, knowing that we don't we are not good at estimating where the pericardial reflection is. Um, however, that's sort of my dividing line. And then certainly there's other patient characteristics. A lot of these patients are very sick, have comorbid conditions. They'll all get general anesthesia. Um, but either way, I think the preparation, either alerting your anesthesiologist or your CRNA to what potential complications are, what to look for, um, 
or in some of these patients, what I'll do is I'll ultrasound the heart ahead of time, make sure we mark a pericardial window in case we have to do an emergency pericardial synthesis. Whoever that is in the room with you is helping, I think needs to be aware of all that, whether that's anesthesia or your sedation nurse. Okay. That's really good. I like that, Mark. I mean, yeah, I mean, most of these that I'm bringing back and then I'm doing, I have to recanalize the central vein if I wasn't successful at the first time. They're usually always under general anesthesia. And I'll warn my um, anesthesiologist about potential complications. But, you know, always thinking one step ahead is great. And I think in the future, I'm going to I'm going to incorporate that where, you know, just marking a pericardial window that could save you you know, three minutes, which is a huge amount of time in the setting of, of, uh, of heart care, per, pericardial tamponade. So that's, that's a great tip. Um, now, Sabine, how do you use the lesion location? Uh, and, and I guess, you know, the severity to determine your access points. So, you know, uh, basically if it's, you know, a subclavian or brachycephalic lesion, long, long segment or short with the, with the venogram, I kind of decide where are my two points going to connect and I'll get that, you know, venographically I'll put two catheters in that location. Uh, and of course I'll try blunt, uh, you know, I, I use that anatomy and, and I'm pretty confident doing blunt uh, probing at that point, but uh, it's definitely useful when I, when I move to the sharp recanalization techniques uh, using a needle to get through uh is something that you definitely want to know all your landmarks and a CT venogram helps. Now, Mark uses a power wire, which I haven't used since, since fellowship. And I think that's an amazing device. And I, I wish I had it on my shelf, Me but too. I think you could basically, yeah, you could do anything good or bad with that wire. And if in Mark's hands, you could do everything great. <laughs> to me, vectors is really important. Um, are really important. And so I will always, if it's an SVC lesion, I will do everything I can to, to, to try jugular, external jugular, direct stick right at the um, confluence of the external jugular, subclavian, um, because I think going from the arm around the bend makes it a little bit harder, especially mm-hmm. if we have to do sharp recanalization. What Sabine mentioned about the power wire, I think is true. It will go through almost anything, um, which is good and bad. It will go through almost <laughs> anything, including bone, heart, aorta. Um, but it, that said, it's very uh, flexible, it's very torqueable, and so that helps you get around some angles. Um, I, you know, I appreciate what Sabine said, but where I've had failure with a, with a power wire is um, heavily calcified lesions. So the power wire, again, uh, yeah. mind it's a rate of frequency-assisted canalization, it'll just stop in calcium. and yeah. that's or, or occasionally if you hit a stent, um, if you can get, if you can say center, that's great, but sometimes if you hit the metal, it just shuts out which can be good or bad depending on what you're trying to do. Right. Uh, Mark, walk me through your algorithm, if you don't mind, going from your initial integrate access all the way to sharp recanalization. Yeah, so just like anything, and this is so much easier said than done, you try, you have to set a goal for yourself because these cases can easily be 10-hour cases with $50,000 worth of supplies. <laughs> and so you can't do that. Um, so for me, I will start uh, my... I always start with a triaxial system, and that means a sheath, a long sheath, um, a guide catheter, a crossing catheter, and sometimes a quatraxial system where I take a coaxial, something like a coaxial trailblazer, coaxial um, CXI. And as Mike Miller used to say, I take the fight to the site. So take all your support to that access. Take all your support to that access. Um, and I'll start with a stiff glide wire. 
and I'll either, either use a tapping or a drilling technique. After that, I may move to a CTO wire. I've actually had a lot of success with the Estado 30 wire in the central oh. veins. And then after that, I move to more aggressive techniques, and that's usually sharp with the back end of a glide wire, back end of a, a Stato, um, which is basically like a spear. And then if that doesn't work, I'll move on to um, the big guns, which is RF. Uh, sorry, and somewhere along the lines, I've already gotten retrograde access into the groin um, and done the same thing from below. Would be anything to add there? No, you know, one thing is, uh, I, I, we didn't mention this device, but the sharp recanalization of BT, I, I use a transeptal needle or a, a long uh, 21, 22 gauge needle. Uh, but uh, one thing that I found works, and this is a something I kind of just found accidentally, but with the support catheter, like a quick cross or a CXI, I've had, you know, I, I have about five cases where I've been successful. I, I'm shoving a wire you know, I've tried a, a Compi and a, glide, a stiff glide, and I'm trying a, a Stato 30. I can't get anywhere. And then, you know, I'll take the wire on. I'll just push the support catheter blindly at the neck, and it'll go. It'll somehow recanal. It will. It'll go into the uh, occlusion, and then I can push a wire through. Okay. I don't know why this works, but it's something I've added where I'll try. And it's, it's worked maybe five times, but I'll just push the catheter, and it. it goes so it's maybe maybe not the best it goes against what i what i've been taught to never go nothing over a wire but it, it works so it's something to try yeah that that was something Absolutely. that we did at pen for that uh it worked pretty well yeah those i just tweeted a case there's um the, <laughs> those catheters will find nipples they'll find nipples that are angiographically occult and so i think what sabine what what you do and it's a great technique, what you do is you're not really recanalizing with that. You're just finding the entry site and then your yeah. wire is doing the recanalization, but you're at least yeah. engaging something. Whereas the wire will just fold, fold on itself and form a J, which is not helpful. Yes. Yeah. Also really like that quote, take the, uh, take the fight to the site that it's very similar <laughs> to what um, uh, Jeff Chick had talked about, you know, for doing these in the legs, the lower extremity recanalization that it just, it seems so simple and so straightforward, but it's easy to forget. You know, you really need that support for these really chronic ones. Uh, now, Mark, tell us I about. Like, uh, I am, I am. I have to tell you. I wish I could. I don't know if this would be included, but I've referred. I have. I am referred so many cases where I go back and look at the original attempt from someone else, and it is a comfy catheter all the way out to the SVC with a short little sheath in the arm <laughs> with zero support. And I'm like, if only they knew that they could have gone through. With just a little bit of support, it probably would have been super easy for them, but. Uh, it makes an extraordinary difference having that long sheath and getting up there just to have the support. Everything just, you know, folds over on itself if you don't. Um, now, Mark, tell me, you know, how do you approach, you say, you know, you've gotten across, you've got through and through access past the occlusion. Uh, you know, what, what are your next treatment steps in terms of angioplasty, stenting, et cetera? Yeah, so my algorithm is always, if it was easy to cross, I will prefer angioplasty. If it was hard to cross, they get a stent. So, and hard and easy for me, I just sort of divide it into sharp and not sharp. So if I can cross with a catheter and a wire, traditionally, um, I will try angioplasty. If I have a good angioplasty result, I will stop. If I have to do something heroic, um, or if I have to do something difficult like RF wire or sharp recanalization, that's a stent. Okay. Stick with heroic. You're a hero. Uh, <laughs> what stents do you use? Yeah, exactly. So centrally, I'll use um, just bare metal stents. The only time I use a primary covered stent is when I 
recanalize into the low SVC or right atrium, I will primarily stemcraft those um, just because I've I've obviously had cases where um, those can when those go bad, they will go bad quickly. Yeah. And so we used to always have stemcrafts um, in the room ready. And luckily, we've been able to, you know, the, the one case I remember that's been the worst, we had a stencraft up and ready and the patient did fine. But now I just I think it's not even worth it. I will just primarily stencraft those patients. And again, that's for patients who I've done a sharp recanalization into the right atrium. If it's a stenosis, I'm OK just putting a bare metal stent there. Um, but if it is a sharp where I'm not positive I was intraluminal, they get primarily stencrafted. OK, yeah, I'd, like to, I'd like to just interject one thing is, is I was under... And we had a recent discussion, Mark and I, about uh, what device to use as far as stenting goes. And I had some, I don't know if it was a black pearl or something where I, you know, I extrapolated the data from using stent graphs, you know, that in a fistula circuit that they're better. And so I was under, I've been in a few cases where I've been debating, do I use a bare metal or a stent graph centrally, whether this was a fistula or it was a central recan that was a non-fistula. Um, but you know, I, I've gone back to going as a bare metal stent in that area first. And I think that actually helps a lot because really? you don't have to worry, um, about jailing some things and, right. and it's just, it, it's good. So for anyone who's, who's under that same impression that you should do a stent graph centrally, um, you know, I, I definitely think doing a bare metal, as Marcus said, is definitely a, a first go-to, which, okay. which is good. Sabine, how do you size Yeah, them? we may be. We, we may be wrong. I mean, I think let the data come out, but really the only data out there that is for stent graft is certainly cephalic arch and venous anastomosis and the venous anastomosis. Um, yeah. You know, maybe in a couple of years we'll show that stent grafts are good centrally, but at this point I think the risk of jailing the expense um, most of the time is not warranted. Like Sabine, Sabine says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you were asking about sizing Mike yeah. and, and I mean, I think I don't see any reason not to put a 14, a millimeter bare metal in that region in a brachycephalic SVC. I think well, if you want to go larger, wall stents are hard to deploy in that area, especially if you're trying to not go across the brachycephalic vein. You always have to have their, your wire down the IVC because you do not want to lose a device into the heart. Okay. Um, I just have one more question. Uh, Mark, what was that that little trick that you posted on Twitter the other day, you know, with the, uh, the suture going through your sheath when you'd removed it, I think it was in a declot. Yeah. So I made the comment that I think during declots, sometimes the, sh- the other facing sheath gets in the way. And so a trick again from Mike Miller is you can pull the sheath out. The problem, if you pull the sheath out, the patient's getting sanguinate because now you've got this big hole. Right. And so what I'll do is I'll put my Z stitch, the same one that gets the swizzle stick, and take a one-way stopcock and put the Z-stitch strings, the ends, through the stopcock. And what you can do is if you lock that in place, you can tamponade the hole, lock it in place. And this way, your sheath is out of the way. You clearly stay, have the wire still in. Um, it's out of the way. You can clean out whatever you want to do, Androjet, you know, Penumbra, Fogarty Balloon, whatever it is, cleaner. And then when you're done, you can put the sheath back in, but your one-way stopcock tamponades the access side hole. That's perfect. That's awesome. Um, all right, guys, awesome we, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that we haven't gotten through that, you know, you think we need to mention before we uh, close this out? Yeah, you know, I've been kind of writing notes because from my experience, I, I always forget about something. So I've been writing some notes as we've been talking. So 
Uh, first, I'd like to say that uh, Mark has some awesome phrases. So, <laughs> I mean, circle, not a cigar, swizzle stick, oculoplasty, and fight to the site. I mean, yeah. those are great. I'm going to start using those in my practice. So thank you, Mark. Um, but uh, something that I have seen, you know, recently, or not recently, but I've seen through my experience and actually one of my younger partners who we just hired, he, he asked me, he had this issue too. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I do see this and what do I do? Is what do you do about spasm? Now, venous spasm, you, you, oh, you did question. a fish telegram, you know, you saw this site that what, what, you see a critical stenosis, you treat that. And all of a sudden you see this new lesion that was proximal to your balloon or distal and it's like pretty bad now what do you do do you give nitro do you plasty it do you just leave it alone you knew that that was fine before so you know this is spasm and what what do you do yeah i think it's a great question here's another quote for you from a surgeon we used to work with who said ain't nothing worse ain't nothing worse than a pissed off vein and that's exactly right i think Sometimes you see it. I think attention to detail, like Sabine says, if you're smart enough like he is to go back to your original and say, wait a minute, that wasn't there, uh, then I think that's helpful. I found nitro to be less helpful in the venous system than arterial system. Um, to me, when I see those lesions, I almost never plasty them unless I wait it out and it's not getting better and it is clearly limiting flow. If it's limiting flow and I say, if I close now, this is going to thrombose, then I will plasty it, knowing that there is a risk that you're making it worse. Um, yeah. But that's sort of my algorithm. Wait it out. Uh, try to let it relax. If not, gently plasty, not, maybe not even to nominal, um, and try to resolve it that way. Again, thank you both for being here. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners. Check out our new, uh, our new app with the procedures-based stuff on there. It's, it's really great. And uh, reach out to us on Twitter or email. Let us know what you want to hear. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mike. This is great. Thanks, Sabine. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be part of it.